How healthy are your eating habits? Really? What should we eat and when? What are the means of wrong assumption we make that may drive unhealthy decisions when it comes to our meals? And how can we start on a healthier path for our sake and of those we care about? Join me after the intro for a conversation with a very special friend with whom we will answer this and many more questions. Stay tuned. Do you feel stuck in your life? Do you feel unhappy but not completely sure why that is? Do you hold a grudge towards someone for something they did which affects you and the way you live your life? Have you ever told someone, I forgive you, but in reality you were not completely over what happened? Why is it so difficult to truly forgive? How do we forgive? And can anything and anyone be forgiven? Hi, my name is Rosanna D, and I'm the host of the Forgiven Tribe Show. This is a safe and not judgmental place for sharing opinions and challenging experiences where the practice of forgiveness helped individuals to get unstuck and create a much more fulfilling life than they had before. Join me in this exciting journey to unveil how you too can have the life you deserve. Simply click the subscribe button below to receive notification about future episodes. Welcome to the Forgive and Try show. Good nutrition is the key to good mental and physical health. Eating a balanced diet is an important part of a good health for everyone. The kind and amount of food that we eat affects the way we feel and how our body works. And yet making the right choices is not as straightforward as we would perhaps like. The amount of information, ideas, and advices is at best overwhelming. And navigating all these choices and create truly healthy nutrition habits can be very challenging. What should we eat and when? What are the myths and wrong assumptions we make that drive unhealthy decisions when it comes to our meals. And how can we revert them and start on a healthier path for our sake and of those we care about? So today we want to have an unfiltered conversation to uncover the truth about food and nutrition. So today we explore this fascinating topic with Matty Lansdowne. Matty is a nutrition scientist, international speaker, health coach, and the host of the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. He uses his knowledge and expertise in psychology and nutrition to facilitate transformational health stories by helping women answer the question, why can I just eat healthy? Through his programs, Matty supports women to lose weight, get their energy and sex drive back, and be kinder to themselves. Hi, Matty. Welcome to the Forgiven Try Show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation and see where it goes. Fantastic. I'm excited too. This is a very important topic for me, so let's get mm-hmm. in. But before talking about nutrition itself, I want to know a little bit more about you. I just mentioned a couple of things. So where did you start in particular with nutrition? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so for me, the journey 
So I started, you know, I was in the countryside with my family, so I lived away from the city. My mum was a nurse, so I grew up very much interested in health and looking up to her. And I used to go to the hospital a lot um, as sort of daycare. I used to run around the hospital um, whilst my mum looked after me. Um, well, rather the patients kind of looked after me more than my mum because she was working. But, um, but that beginning meant that I really looked up to medicine and healthcare and that type of thing as, as amazing. Um, and I then became an athlete in my teenage years and, and did quite well with a number of sports and that type of thing. And so I was all this time, uh, what, what Western medicine does, and mum's a nurse, but I've you know, since worked in many hospitals, but is it doesn't really connect food and the, the health of your body. Your doctor will very rarely talk to you about food. He might mention it here and there, but it's mainly about the drugs. And, and so I also grew up the same, not really connecting food and the state of my body or the performance of my body or anything about my body really. And I always just thought it's just athletes. You know, we, we only think about athletes that need to focus on nutrition because they need to perform amazingly and whatnot. And so it wasn't until I then moved to the city and, you know, moved into research and, you know, st studied my degrees and that type of thing that um, I started realizing that I worked at a cancer hospital for many years and I started realizing that every single person, every time I walk through the clinic um, every day, almost every person in the waiting room was visibly overweight. And I thought, you know, what, what leads to weight loss? And it's, it, the answer is food, right? sorry, weight gain. And the answer is food. And so for me, and when you look at the data, obesity and being overweight is the number one precursor to all disease, all diseases of civilization, diabetes, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all of those types of things, except for the tiny amount of people that are genetically unlucky. But, but in this modern day and age, most people think they're genetically unlucky when actually it's a life that we've created by the food choices that we've made over decades and decades. And so it was this awareness of like being constantly surrounded by all of these cancer patients that were seriously overweight. And so, you know, as, as the medical systems gets better and better, disease numbers go up. So which raises the question, is the medical system getting better? Um, and so for me, that, that was like, okay, I've got to go back to the, the core of the problem because many of these people probably wouldn't have cancer if they were able to navigate their nutrition correctly. And so I got a nutrition, got into new, uh, nutrition school, studied nutrition. Um, I already had an honors degree in nutritional epigenetics, which is a sort of a deep dive conversation for another day. But um, at this point, I, was, I started doing lectures and, and workshops and events outside of the hospital, teaching people on nutrition. And I was lucky enough to travel all over the world doing that at different events. And what I learned is that I never met a single person that didn't know meat, vegetables, fruit, nuts, and seeds were a good idea. I've never met somebody that didn't know what healthy food actually was. And a lot of people say, a lot of people don't know what to eat, but I'm yet to meet somebody that actually didn't know what to eat. And I've also never met someone that thought chocolate for breakfast was an amazing idea. Like, so I realized if everybody knows what to eat, why do we have this issue with obesity and all of the disease numbers just keep going up and up and up and up and up, even when apparently medicine is getting better and better and better. And so what I landed at is that if people know what to eat and they don't, their psychology is the problem. The way they think about themselves, the way they think about their life, the way they think about the world and the stories and beliefs that they have attached to those behaviors is the core problem, which is how I, I went, arrived at nutrition and then realized actually nutrition's a smaller part of the, the problem. The big problem 
is helping people answer that question. Why can't I just be healthy? Healthy. Why can't I just stick to a diet? Why can't I do what's good for me? Because we often know the answer to those questions. Wow, there is so much already in the answer that you gave to this uh, very first question. And in particular, I like the idea of this, uh, um, or looking at the emotional side of, of nutrition, mm-hmm. because I've been struggling with weight all my life. And it's not unusual for me to have people around, even very close, my mother, my sister, say, oh, why don't you go on a diet? Oh, you know, there is this uh, new hospital where they have this fantastic program and we can go there and you can start a diet. And I always say, look, I've been on a diet for most part of my life. And I can tell you that a restricted calorie intake doesn't work. And it doesn't work mm-hmm. because it's not sustainable long term. If someone could tie my, my hands and uh, tie me in, into a chair 24-7, probably, yes, it will work. But Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm le- uh, left to my own devices, I won't. So it's not mm-hmm. sustainable. But also, very often people don't overeat because they just like overeating. Mm. They, they eat because they want to silence something else. Yeah, like, you're totally right. So how do we come out of, of this? So can we talk a little bit about this emotional impact on our yeah. choices? Yeah, definitely. So it's a very, well, it's a very deep topic for a lot of people, but it's, it's a, it goes to different depths for every individual person. Um, and so there's, there's two sides to it. There's the emotional and maybe energetic, you might say, or spiritual even. And then there's the physical body. And both parts are important because it's, most people are addicted to sugar because their cells are addicted to sugar. Their, your, your body runs on it. But the real addiction is actually less so about the actual sugar in your cell and the addiction to the dopamine cycle that happens in your brain. So dopamine, for those listening, is the happy hormone. You feel that hormone, sort of dopamine and serotonin are the two happy hormones that you feel in your body when you're proud of yourself, when you've just achieved something that you set out to achieve. Like maybe you go to the gym and you finish your program and you feel really accomplished and good. It's that sense of pride that you might have for your kids. So that dopamine... The reason that we do a lot of our behavior in the day, most of it is because we're chasing dopamine. We're chasing that feeling of satisfaction. And because historically, when we were in tribes and we were walking around the savannah, you know, which was for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, it's only been about 100 to 150 years that this sugar has really been available in abundance. For all of those years, dopamine, it it cost us a lot of work, like a, a lot of time and energy to actually get dopamine. So it meant that our body didn't regulate a pathway to say we can stop getting dopamine now. So what's happened in the modern era is that um, businesses have been understanding that dopamine drives behavior because we're all looking for that next hit of goodness and feeling and we're all trying to get away from pain and suffering and trauma and discomfort. And so the way the brain is built, which is really in, both really intelligent and really problematic, is that the brain always looks for the fastest way to solve a problem And that's good because humans have solved millions of problems over thousands of years and we've got so much amazing technology. The catch is that it also solves the problem of um, managing emotions, dealing with stress, um, dealing with loneliness, dealing with uh, boredom. And the fastest way to solve that and get a dopamine hit is to put in no effort at all and just have some sugar, just go to the fridge. Whereas back in the day, thousands of years ago, the effort we would have had to go in 
go to would have been to risk our lives hunting, right? Which is a huge payment to make in order to actually be deserving of the dopamine hit. Social media is d designed um, with literally flaws of psychological engineers that are figuring out how to change the design of the app, the algorithm in the app to, again, give you more dopamine hits more often so that we're addicted to our phones. The food industry, the sugar industry does the same thing. Uh, and there's a thing called the Dorito effect. So Dorito chips, they discovered that if they, if they salt every ninth chip five times the amount of salt as all the other chips, that that would trigger um, an addictive response in the brain like gambling. So you would keep going into the bag, seeking that ninth chip that's got all of the extra flavoring, which you know you put all over your tongue. So all of this, we're, it all leads down to the fact that our mind is addicted to the dopamine cycle and therefore doesn't deal with any of the emotions that we're trying to get away from. Stress, discomfort, loneliness, boredom, anything that you try and fill with food to try and hide that emotion or push that emotion down is, is emotional eating. And the interesting thing is too, many people are, it's so automated because the brain's really good at automating things that most people don't even know that they're emotionally eating because their brain doesn't even experience the emotion. It just goes straight from problem to food. It's so fantastic what you are saying because we are basically conditioned to overeat. Mm -hmm. We are conditioned yeah. psychologically to go for the high sugary intake and, <laughs> and these sort of things. And I noticed that when you go shopping, for example, all the nasty food that we shouldn't really put in our trolley, they all have green colors, um, mm. healthy messages. So the advertisement, that's all in marketing, really, mm. um, is, is very powerful in, in the choices that we make. Sometimes we think, oh, I put this in my trolley. I'm responsible for that. And I don't want with that, by saying that, uh, removing the responsibility that uh, individually we have, but the advertisement mm -hmm. is extremely clever. So yeah. what should we look at when we are shopping? How do we choose the food, the right food for us? Yeah, I think it's, you made a really good point, is that we do have to be aware that we do have individual responsibility. However, sugar companies, social media companies, porn companies, all of these companies are built on with millions and millions of dollars paying people to make you addicted to their product. So it's, it's, it's okay to like say, oh, I'm just not strong enough. Remember, we're all going up against multi-billion dollar corporations that pour so much money into addicting you. And I've actually had one of the psychologists um, that was a part of in the 90s um, creating um, chocolate packaging that was bright colors because it, they discovered that it triggered the reptilian response in the deep part of the brain, which meant that in our, in our subconscious, it identified bright colors as fruit. And if we think about us and monkeys in nature, fruit is a high energy food. And so when we find fruit in nature, which is actually rare, it's very rare to find fruit in nature that's not already eaten by bugs and monkeys and that type of thing. We go towards it and we eat it really quickly. So those packaging, that packaging has been designed to speak to really, really deep parts of your brain that you don't even know are, are actually there. So yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. But the thing to look for when you're in a supermarket and it might be an unpopular opinion, is that you should not touch anything that isn't a bag, a box, or a can. It should look like it came from a farm. It should be produce. 
Um, and remember, everybody's at a different part of their journey and they've got access to different amounts of natural food and whole real food. And, and so everyone's response is going to be different because they might live you know, far away from places where there's farmer's markets or they might be in a situation where they can't really afford to buy some of the healthier food. And so we have to compromise. But wherever you can, you want to make sure that as much of the, the things in your trolley look like they came from a, a farm. It should be meat. It should be uh, vegetables mostly. Fruit should be a very small part of the equation because, uh, well, that's a conversation for another day. But basically, it should look like it came from the farm. Eat how your grandmother ate. And guess what? You'll be on the right track because how your grandmother ate is the same way that every generation before her ate. Whole, real food. And we didn't have an obesity problem. We didn't have a cancer problem. We didn't have a diabetes or a heart disease problem until the last 50 years. Okay, this, this is uh, very important. But I have to mm -hmm. say, I heard a lot of people saying exactly that. Mm -hmm. And yet we struggle to embrace it. And part mm -hmm. of the... Uh, The answer perhaps to my next question is already in what you have said, this conditioning. But why, even when we realize that there is a conditioning, even when we realize that the advertisement is very clever in the way they put the, uh, the message out there and the way they package their food, we still go for that. Mm -hmm. How can we break that sort of habit and how can we rebuild habits that say, you know what, I'm responsible of what I put in my trolley, so I make mm -hmm. the decision, not the advertisement. Yeah, that's a good question. And the, and the um, not sexy answer is that it takes time and everybody listening has been contri like contributed to by diet culture, which is like lose 20 pounds in you know, 28 days or you know, whatever crazy marketing scheme the latest gym is promoting or the latest, you know, Um, dietitian is promoting and as you know and you mentioned before those things they, they don't work for very long it might because we're not dealing with the main driver of eating sugar and eating unhelpful foods which is the emotional eating so the first thing you need to do is learn about yourself because many people don't know their emotional eating but emotionally eating many people don't know that they're using food to avoid emotions or to distract themselves from uncomfortable experiences And in this modern privileged world, it's so easy to avoid difficult experiences, you know? And, and so that's unfortunately making the human species quite weak um, because we, we aren't practicing being resilient and being strong uh, very often. So we have to start really small. Um, and we start small by just learning about yourself and just starting to be like, just question yourself. Why am I eating this? And, and start, I, something I do with my clients is that one of the first things we do is We just start collecting information. We don't make any changes. And every time you eat, you have to write down how you feel, what the food is, and where you're eating it. Because we want to start finding patterns in your daily life that it's like, and a lot of people start seeing this without me saying anything. They're like, oh, I just realized I always eat when I'm stressed. Or they've just realized that I come home and I just go straight to the fridge because I'm bored or I'm tired and I'm trying to make myself feel better from the day. And, and there'll be, there's a long, long list of reasons that you're probably emotionally eating. Um, and so, and, and the definition of emotional eating, by the way, is um, eating for any other reason than actual nutritional requirement. Um, and so, and, and the physical, other physical side of that is that there, 
a lot of the times people have the diet wrong, so they're getting hungry too often. And like, we do not need morning tea. We do not need afternoon tea. We do not need supper. Uh, we don't need to eat that many times in the day. But the reason people are hungry that many times in the day is because, again, they're eating the wrong foods, which make them hungry, which make them addicted, which, you know, make them chase that dopamine. So we really have to become aware of our emotions. And then once we're aware of them, we have to figure out how to, one, be okay with them being there because they're uncomfortable. They don't feel good. Um, but it's part of the human experience to have bad days and stressful days and fights with your partner and that type of thing. You've got to, and then figure out ways to process that emotion. So a lot of people process the emotion by eating sugar <laughs> or they avoid processing the emotion by eating sugar. Um, and so we need to find other alternative ways to process those emotions or let those emotions out. Things like journaling, things like, um, you know, there's a long list. You could instead have a bath. If you're feeling lonely and bored or un unhappy, do something that feels great. Have a bath, light some candles, put some salt in there. Um, go for a walk around the block, go to the gym, you know, and there's lots of other little small alternatives. The, the thing we don't want to swap it out with is just another food because then we're just emotionally eating other food, right? So a lot of people say, but what if I have a healthy option? We're still being driven by emotion, so we haven't dealt with the core problem. So we really need to, and this is a long process. I, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm like, get healthy the slow way because everybody I work with, has tried to get healthy the fast way about 25 times in their life and they're still talking to me. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I like where you are going with the habits and what we have to do. And I have to say, mm -hmm. I've been looking into dieting and healthy eating uh, all my life and uh, I'm still, as you said, I'm still in, uh, processing all the, the information. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's quite overwhelming. Um, yeah what we are um, we are told and there is actually you mentioned already a few times sugar and mm -hmm. there is perhaps a, a wrong uh, misconception about fat we always think mm. that fat is the problem why you keep going back on on sugar and i was mm -hmm. uh, reading that um i don't remember when in the 70s perhaps that Actually, the sugar industry commissioned a, a study, a research study, mm. to put the, the weight on, uh, uh, on the fat. And we now have this idea that fat is, is bad for us, is it? Yeah, the, yeah and that's, that's a good question. So there was a study done in 1958, was the very first study by a guy called Ansel Keys. Um, but all of the research after that, and a lot of that happened in the 70s as well, were, yeah, sugar giants and sugar companies commissioning um, scientists to do research on their behalf to confirm that, that, that this was true. The problem is that very first study in 1958 was a fraud. So Ansel Keys was originally celebrated as the most amazing scientist ever. He found a connection between um, fat consumption and atherosclerosis or heart disease and that type of thing. Um, and it was called the seven country study. And yeah, he was meant to be amazing. And then the, the first, um, the U, in the USA, the first food pyramid was created in 1977. And the reason that it was recommending mostly grains, mostly rice, mostly bread, and to keep fats to a, to a very low amount and to keep red meat to a low amount was because of this, this study and all of the studies that came after it. About 20 years after that, he was, he was announced as one of the, the worst scientific frauds because... The seven country study, which looked like this perfect study where they had this relationship between fat consumption and um, heart disease, 
was actually a 22-country study. He cherry-picked the data to fit, fit the, the result that he wanted. And when you look at all 22 countries, there's actually no relationship at all. Not only that, the countries that he included, um, Italy, Italy was, on, it was during Lent, so that's not a representation of their food consumption at the time. Um, and there was, there was something else happening in France at the time too that altered their normal dietary outcomes. So the, diet, the, the data was very biased. And then after that, we literally had 70 years uh, of uh, low-fat campaigning. Because, and the other thing too is it's very easy to market because the word fat in food and the word fat in a human body uh, uh, like they're the same word, but they mean totally different things. And that's actually why I kind of like to say proteins, carbohydrates, and lipids, because because protein and carbohydrates, they're biochemistry words. They're like not normal words, right? Fat is like a casual everyday word. That's not what it is in the laboratory. It's a lipid. So I think we really need to create space between the word lipid and the word fat, because those things being the same word, really, it's good for marketing, right? Um, so, yeah, we really should refer to fat in the diet as, as lipids because then it matches the right flow of the words that we're using. Um, but, yeah, so that led to so many years of, of that kind of messaging. Our, the governments all over the world followed this device, all the food companies, all the medical companies, all the medical education, and doctors only get, like, one, two, three hours of um, nutritional education in their entire journey. Um, and and I, I know that because I used to work in a hospital for seven years and I used to ask doctors all the time, um, how many hours of nutrition education have you had? And most of them could never remember learning any nutrition at all. Um, and so, so, yeah, back to the fat thing, though, is that, yeah, fat is not bad. There is types of fat that is unhelpful for the body, um, especially different fats that are heated too much. Um, vegetable, like if, if I was sat down in front of a person and said, you've got five seconds, give one piece of health advice that will change their life, Every single time, I will say, do everything to remove vegetable oil from your diet. It's much worse than sugar, devastating to your body, and that is literally the number one piece of health advice I can give anyone. Remove vegetable oil. Don't ever buy it from the supermarket. Don't ever cook with it. Read the packaging of everything you buy. You'll find it's in almost everything because it helps preserve products and it helps enhance the flavor, even in the health aisle. So a lot of the stuff in the health aisle... Um, is lower in sugar because everybody knows about sugar but it's still got vegetable oil in it and I actually did um, an episode on my podcast about the shocking history of vegetable oil and it's, it's very, lots and lots and lots of mil multi-million dollar corruption in the vegetable oil industry but I truly believe that vegetable oil is the worst thing that a human could put in their body aside from actual petrol. <laughs> When you say vegetable oil, do you include olive oil? Because there is... A... No, that's a fruit. That, okay, okay. Because yeah. they always say olive oil is, is very good for you. Yeah. Oh, so the vegetable oils, um, the interesting thing is in the 70s, a group of um, businessmen sat around a table and said, because they're not vegetables at all. They're seed and nut oils. And they literally decided for marketing reasons, we're going to call this group of oils vegetable oils because then it'll sound healthy. It's actually canola oil, rapeseed oil, uh, safflower oil, sunflower oil, peanut oil. So all of those nut and seed oils um, are, are really devastating for your body. Um, and, and I would literally, yeah, there's, there's no, no situation in which those things are good for your body in any way because they're, they're really toxic already in the bottle. And then we take them home and then we heat them again. So we damage the molecules even more. And many of those oils go between 30 and 70 steps of manufacture 
And they're so, they're so terrible for us that they have to deodorize them. So they put deodorant into them to make them taste edible because they actually smell so bad. If you ever go past the vegetable oil factory, the smell out the back is terrible. So we would never eat them. They color them so that they look golden and perfect and all the same color. Um, and, and so they go through all of these steps. And in, in that process, there's lots of heating, which like to very high temperatures. So that damages the oil, which inevitably makes them sort of damaging to our arteries and our stomach and our cells. Um, and so they go through this whole process. Then they put them in a bottle. Then they sit at the dock or on a boat or in a warehouse for months and months and months and months. And then by the time it ends up on your plate at home, the, the molecules of oil are so incredibly damaged that they're just not good for us. They do so much, so much damage to the body. And so when you are looking for oils, you want to look for your coconut oil, your olive oil, um, and, and a really good cooking um, is your animal fats. So your lard, suet, um, tallow, that type of thing, which, is, which we've cooked with for thousands of years. Like we've been using those tools for thousands of years. The other thing is too, with your oils, you want them to be cold pressed. So they're not going through all of that heating in the manufacture process. So you want cold pressed oils. So yeah, so, so, and none of those, um, you know, your cold pressed olive oil, coconut oil, ghee, that's another one. None of those are damaging to your cells in any way. Of course, everything has a point where if you heat it too hot, it will damage the molecule. It's the same with everything. Um, but it's better to get, do the heating at home yourself than have something that's already been preheated to like hundreds of degrees to, to purify it. And, and then interestingly too, so these um, vegetable oil factories, a lot of the stuff that goes out the, the back end of the waste product then goes to farmers that then feed our cows and, and our pigs. So a lot of the meat we buy that's factory farmed, they're also eating one of the worst things you can put in an animal's body. So you, we're, we're putting vegetable oil in our own body. We're probably cooking the meat in vegetable oil. The meat ate canola feed. A lot of farmers use canola feed or um, safflower feed or sunflower feed, which is just the weight waste products from these factories. So which, it's everywhere. It's pretty hard to avoid, but that's, that's really, really... Um, damaging to our body and like it's yeah they're the kind of fats you want to stay away from because they're incredibly damaged by the manufacture process Mate, i had so many haha moments uh during this past five minutes uh you have no idea mm -hmm. so cooking uh with fruit-based oil mm. using only uh those so avoiding the seeds even if they're cold uh, vegetable oil. <laughs> yeah, they're not vegetables. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, this is quite shocking uh, mm. to see the extent of, of the marketing and how much we are defrauded in, yeah. in our ability to, to stay healthy because of all these uh, wrong messages. So that is uh, mm. one thing. But the other is uh, also, for example, I remember my grandmother, I, I grew up in Italy, and my grandmother really never used oil to cook. Typically, it was added at the end. So is, yeah. there, is there a reason to preserve basically the healthy elements in, in the oil itself? So it's, uh, it's another yeah. habit that we should probably embrace. Yeah, no, you, you're totally right. Is that, and olive oil is often used, you know, it's put on the table to use with bread and to pour over salads and and, and agreed, like you put it on afterwards because then you're not exposing it to the very high temperature of the oven or the stove at home. Because even at home, we can heat these oils, the healthy oils, to temperatures which damage them. 
Um, they're less damaged than vegetable oils, but we've got to be careful that cooking these things too hot can damage those oils. But, you know, in a, in a weight loss journey or a health journey, this is just one of the things. Um, it's a really, it's, it's, it's the, I could think the, the biggest decision you can make from, a, from one of the many decisions is to remove the vegetable oil and, yeah, start adding that, that oil later on. And, and I think as well, we used to cook food differently. We didn't used to fry it in oil all the time. It used to be there was lots of boiling of meat. There was lots of roasting of meat. Um, and so we, we kind of moved to the convenience era and the deep fried era where now we put everything in a pan with oil, whereas a lot of the cooking used to be done for many, many, many centuries in water or over a fire uh, or in an oven, which is, you know, not need, you don't need oil in a lot of those scenarios. And if you do, a lot of the oil actually comes out of the meat. So you're effectively using the fat from the animal as the oil that you're using. You mentioned here the, the word convenience, which I think mm -hmm. is, a, is a big one. Yeah. We, we live in a, in a world right now where people are rushing all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in the past, most women were at home taking care of uh, the house, the, the family, the children. And cooking was a, a big experience for them, was uh, a big uh, aspect of, of their whole life. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we live in a different world. Women and rightly so, I would say, work. And they need to juggle lots of things. Mm -hmm. And convenience, obviously, of some of the food is probably the, the first aspect, I would say, drive their choice. Mm -hmm. What would you say that? How can we eat healthy, still have some sort of convenience so we can juggle different things, including our, our job, but mm -hmm. really not going to the unhealthy food? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I think the answer is the same for men, women, everybody. Is, and that's why emotional eating is about changing your identity because you, you can't. You can't have it all. Like we live in 2022. Everybody's sick. Everybody's overweight. Everybody's got health problems. So you have to choose. You have to choose convenience and an unhealthy life and dying 10 years earlier than you, you normally would. And, and having medication and being uncomfortable for the final 30 years of your life, or you make a switch in your personality and your identity and decide, I want to be a role model for my children because otherwise my children are just going to copy what I've done and I don't feel very well. And so the, the uncomfortable truth is, I know in 2020 we're, we're sold this dream that you can have everything and do whatever you want, but all luxury comes at a cost. All convenience comes at a cost. And that cost is your health. That cost is your hormones. That cost is showing your child how to eat and live terribly by the way you do it. Because a lot of parents think too is that like, oh, you know, I prioritize my kids. I never care about myself. And society says, yeah, mothers should not care about themselves. Everybody first. However, and that might work for the first 10, 15, 20 years. But as soon as your adult children are out on their own, the way that they think about looking after them adult, their adult selves is, how did my mum look after herself? And then they just do the same thing. So even though you might have forced vegetables into them for the first 20 years, the final 50, they're just going to live the same way that you did when you were around them. And if you weren't prioritising yourself, drawing boundaries for your self-care, or finding a way to include the kids in being healthy with you, help cooking in the kitchen together, taking to the them to the gym with you, making sure everybody goes on walks together, you know, in encouraging curiosity about health and the behaviors and things that you're doing, then unfortunately, there's always a cost. 
And so we can't necessarily have convenience and perfectly healthy food together. I'm sure there is a world where that is possible. Uh, and I know lots of businesses that are doing the very best they can to make that possible. But unfortunately, the way that the health system and the food system in most countries is set up is that healthy food's actually more expensive because they subsidize, governments subsidize farmers that produce the, the food that makes profit. So your, your sugar farmers, essentially, so your corn farmers, your wheat farmers, they get big government subsidies and bonuses to make their farming expenses much less. So I really believe that you have to make a choice that you want to change your life, like you have to. Um, and the other thing is that we all vote with our dollar. So if you want to create a better world, you know, if you can afford it, even if it's only once a week or one shop a month or, or even if it is every day, the way that we change culture and economies is by putting money in the economy where we want it to, to be spent. And so the more people that spend on health, the more the economy will move in that direction because that's where the demand is and the government doesn't really care where the money's coming from, they just want the money, right? So we need to funnel the money into the government and into the system via the, via the products and services and, and things that are available that actually help us. That's so beautiful. I mean, given an advice starting from our families and the children and how to inspire them to mm -hmm. eat healthily up to the uh, social uh, impact of, of that. Uh, I absolutely love that. Um, Matti, we, we mentioned already a couple of times we are bombarded by information. Mm -hmm. And in the last few years, I have the impression that there are lots of talking about um, fasting, things mm -hmm. like uh, 5 to 2, 16 to 8, or I, I heard last night 23 to 1, uh, which feels a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but also, uh, you know, lots of different diets, uh, keto, paleo, uh, vegetarian, vegan, uh, fish only, mm -hmm. no carbs. There is a lot of confusion. So yeah. can we bring some clarity? What should we yeah. do? Yeah, it's, it's, there's so much noise. And one of the most common things I get from clients is I, I'm a researcher. I understand all of this information, but there's so many different opinions and research and, and that's the nature of research too. Even though I'm a scientist, I often don't use research when I talk about this because you can find a piece of research to confirm whatever you want to talk about. I could tell you, I could find keto research, I could find low carb research, I could find paleo research, I could find vegan research. So it's not really helpful to necessarily leverage research. But again, I think as a biologist, what I think about, and I've referenced this a few times, is what worked for the first 10,000 years or 100,000 years. And for a lot of that time, the food didn't really change very much until the last few hundred years. But the food changed a lot for people that were wealthy, kings, queens, you know, knights, that type of thing that got access to all of these amazing different foods. But for the, most of the population of the earth, the food was the same for thousands of years until we developed technology to create the world we've created now. So irrelevant of the label that you put on the diet, I just go with the JERF diet. I call it JERF, just eat real food. So it's got to look like it came from a farm, meat, vegetables, fruit, nuts, seeds, things that you could go out into the yard, into the garden or a, your friend's garden or to a farm, take them and eat them straight away. Now you obviously can't do that with a cow, but it came from a farm. Um, and so just eat real food. Now we can definitely get into the technicalities of like low carb, high carb, that type of thing. but if you start with just eat real food, 
you've already taken the biggest step. However, the reason that most of those diets don't work for people irrelevant of the label is again, because they haven't dealt with their emotional eating issues. And that's because they might use willpower for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, maybe even three months. And they'll be like, it's working for me. I've lost weight. And then it'll fall apart. The whole system will fall apart. Now they'll, they'll go even backwards, even further. And again, it's because they're not using a system that helps their mindset and their psychology shift and their identity shift. Because you don't want to be on a diet. You want to be a healthy person that eats food every day. And they're very different things. One is very restrictive, depriving. And like you said, you might need to be chained to a chair in order to achieve it. The other one is it's not about deprivation. It's not about restriction. Um, you, sh you know, the, with the people that work with me, we use intermittent fasting a lot and we use low, low carbohydrate diets a lot. But the goal is never to be hungry, never to be uncomfortable. It's always to be making choices. And if you want to make a choice that's, you know, chocolate, that's okay. Again, it's about managing your ability to decide when that's a good idea and when you could make a different decision. Um, so I think, yeah, just eat real food is the best place for anywhere to start because you can apply that little label to every single one of the diets. That's beautiful. Mati, there are some diseases that are uh, autoimmune, uh, like, for example, uh, celiac uh, disease or uh, mm -hmm. intolerance to dairy products. And I have the impression that a lot of people uh, start to say, oh, you know, I don't have really the allergy, but I'm sensitive to this. And they start mm -hmm. removing without any scientific proof or uh, any test. They start removing mm -hmm. uh, some big food type. What is your advice on that? Is something sensible to do uh, based on your experience as a, a nutritionist? Yeah, I think... Um... Like gluten, so there was a study done in the UK actually um, a few years ago where they, were, they used 8,000 um, roughly healthy people. They were sort of in the middle of the health spectrum uh, and they did a test with wheat and gluten and they found that 96% of 8,000 people, 8,000 healthy people, had an immune reaction to gluten but only 8% of the people knew. So... Um, the rest of everybody that had a reaction, they didn't know, they couldn't feel the reaction, but their immune system was working against to, to detoxify the system from gluten because it, it identified it as an invader and as a, as a problem. Um, and there was a really small 4% of people that um, had no immune response whatsoever. So that, that suggests that it, it is a problem. And, and I think, again, it comes back to the just eat real food. Anything that involves wheat in, a, in its refined form bread, pancakes, uh, croissants, you know, pa any pastry, that's actually not a real food. It's, it's, it's a refined sugar. It's a refined sugar, right? So, um, so and then when, when we talk about low-carb diet and carbohydrates, a lot of people, like, vegetables are 99% carbohydrate. There's almost no vegetable that isn't 99% carbohydrate. So vegetable carbohydrates are, are great, but all those things I just mentioned are actually refined wheat, refined and so they've gone through a processing uh, and a manufacture process that might have damaged the molecules or has taken away the nutrition. Um, and the other thing is, too, that we've got to remember farmers for 10,000 years, it was about 10,000 years that we started ago that we started harvesting um, wheat. And in that 10,000 years, there's been many, many, many um, farmers that are keep hybridizing the, the, the plant to make it better, to make it more effective, to make it produce more wheat. And in that process, a lot of the molecules have changed really quickly. And so the, our gut and our body haven't been able to adapt to them. Um, and so we, we might, and it's the same with a lot of fruit. A lot of fruit is, was sweet originally, but 100 years ago, 
it was a lot less sweet. Because again, farmers know that the society is now driven by sugar, people will buy sweet things, so they spent time hybridizing their apple trees and their peach trees and to make them more sugary, more sweeter, or sweeter so that we can we eat more of them, buy more of them, back to that economically driven thing uh, of the sugar. And so, yeah, I think, I don't think there's a blanket rule for everybody, but again, if I was following the Just Eat Real Food um, idea, that would not involve bread, which means that or bread or any pasta or anything like that, because it doesn't actually, uh, it, it takes away the processed food. However, interestingly, me living in Australia, is that when a lot of um, Australians that have issue with gluten or they've got celiac disease go to Italy, interestingly, the pasta in the northern hemisphere of the world needs, needs a different um, requirement to grow it in a different way. And so people often from Australia have less issues with gluten when they eat pasta in Italy because it's often cooked correctly um, and not, not manufactured. Now, there's obviously lots of places in Italy that are also you know, using the cheap, fast option of highly refined um, wheat molecules. But a lot of the traditional stuff um, actually doesn't cause of much, as much as, of an issue for many people. So again, there's, remember we talked before, is that there's a cost to convenience. And this is one of those many, many costs. It is quite shocking uh, to think about all this because very often we just put our food in, uh, in our plates and, uh, <laughs> and we don't ask so yeah. many questions and we don't ask where it's coming from, what is the mm -hmm. chemistry in the, in the plate. We don't <laughs> ask all these questions and it's quite shocking to see how many little elements or aspects mm. we should really yeah. take consideration uh, if we want to, to be healthy so yeah but the, the important thing though just because a lot of people might be feeling overwhelmed and I've, I've i've joked i joke regularly that my podcast should actually be called maddie ruins everything um <laughs> because i understand like so much about the system that is not good it's not good right and, and means that we suffer but remember wherever you are on your health journey right now it's about making and i always say this uh, little mantra one tweak a week. We want to make small tweaks each week. And so just start with the thing that's in front of you. And the goal is to be totally transformed in like three years. But each week, we're just going to work on something small because we can't change everything overnight. And every time you've probably tried to do that in the past, it might have lasted a month and then you went back. So we can't, we can't use that approach. So there's lots of overwhelming information. But remember, just start with what's in front of you. I absolutely love that. And I don't think that Mati ruins everything. I think awareness <laughs> is, is the first step. If we are not aware of, of things, we, we, can, uh, we cannot change them. So uh, thank, thank you very much for, for, for the... No, thank you very much for the contribution and for being so, so honest. Because it's, it's very difficult and, uh, uh, to be so open on these topics. Uh, as you said before, mm -hmm. there are industries that are spending millions of dollars every single day. And it's not just mm -hmm. the food, it's also the, the big pharma. So the, the, you know, there are different types of, uh, of industry that are really conditioning us to go in a certain direction. Yeah. And talking about that big pharma, whenever there is a symptom, something that we don't feel quite well, we tend to go into the medication side. So how can we use food? and this acronym of, of Jeff, is that something that we can use to also yeah. cure ourselves? Yeah, so this is, 
this is a really interesting area and I was actually having a conversation with some clients this week that have, uh, I've got a few different clients that do have some different disease states. Um, and the thing is a lot of people, uh, when we say food is medicine, it doesn't make sense because a lot of people are like, oh, I've eaten that before and I still got sick. So what, what the big disconnect is, is that like big pharma is, is good for a, like, you know, helping people get back on track and medicine and drugs, I think, have got, are good because it's like if things get so bad that you need some type of medication, that's not always a bad thing because it might help you stop and get you back on your feet. My problem with, and the reason that I left working at the cancer hospital uh, and moved more in that functional nutrition and functional medicine direction was because that period should just be very small. It should just be get back this person back on their feet. Now, let's teach them how to eat. Let's teach them how to manage their stress. Uh, and let's teach them how to, you know, navigate relationships and all the different things that contribute to an individual's wellness. The catch is that that costs lots and lots of resources. And as I said before, being a healthier person in three years sounds like way too much work when we can just sell you a bunch of drugs today and you might feel better for it for the next week. Um, and so again, it comes back to this, you have to decide to be a, a different person. And, and that might be a person that's going to go on a, a more long-term health journey but one that actually means that you're going to be healthy for a decade or two decades or five decades instead of going for the convenience option that makes you healthier for three weeks and then you're back to the same problem or, or even just buying you six months and then you're back to the same problem. But when it comes to food as medicine, every cell in your body is built from the nutrition that you put in your mouth. Like does it, your bones are, your hair is, your face, your body, everything. So the fuel that you put in directly is reflected in the quality of cells that you build. And so if you haven't eaten very well for a long time, then those cells are unfortunately built uh, from inferior and very poor materials. So it's kind of no surprise that we get these diseases because we've effectively built a house of cards and as soon as the wind blows, that all falls over. Um, I actually think it's amazing that we can build our body out of cards and it still lasts 80 years. It's phenomenal. If we all ate perfectly from day one, maybe we'd live to 200. I don't know. But, but I think it's amazing that the body can still keep it together for so long. The problem is, though, we spend so long dying now. Like, things start going downhill from such a young age. And it's almost to the point where at about 50 years of age, you're just waiting for your, late, your diagnosis. Might be diabetes, might be cancer, might be, you know back injuries or you might have to get a reconstruction of something. Everyone's just like, oh, I'm about, I'm about that age and everybody seems to get sick at this time. And that's not meant to happen. That's not meant to happen. So, but when coming back to that food as medicine, if a health issue does come up or a disease situation does come up, Western medicine might be a great way to go about it. There's a lot of other medical modalities out there that have thousands of years of history. Chinese medicine's 10,000 years old and there's lots and lots of scientific research on Chinese me medicine and acupuncture. Um, Ayurveda, which is the Indian medicine, is about six and a half thousand years old. Again, lots of scientific, modern scientific backing for that. Nutritional medicine, same thing. And so when we talk about food as medicine, we have to treat food like we treat medicine. So a lot of people just, if, we, if I say to somebody, we need lots of vitamin C, and the best place to get vitamin C is from red capsicums. And so some, uh, somebody will say, oh, yeah, I, I added red capsicum into three meals this week. If you were given pills from the doctor, he would tell you to take them, he or she would tell, the, tell you to take them, take two a day, every meal for 21 days, and don't miss any. Make sure you get all of them. We need to do the same with the capsicum. 
right? We need to be having a capsicum, a full capsicum with every single meal, every single day for three months type thing. So we need to treat food like medicine. That's the only way we're going to get the benefit of it. Because if we just add these really powerful foods into meals occasionally, and then in between those meals, we have um, foods that actually don't help the body, then we're, we're never going to actually be able to use food in a helpful way. So, and that's a different conversation. That's like more a, I always think about it as like a therapeutic response. It's like if we need a therapeutic response, that's more of a everything needs to change today because there's a really scary possibility that things will go very badly. And then there's the more the people that are in a slower journey, dealing with emotional eating, wanting to prevent that outcome altogether. So I think food as medicine only works if we treat food like medicine. And yet food is a big part of our life, especially when it comes to our social life. Yeah. We spend a lot of time socializing with people, fair enough. Perhaps we forgot after the last couple of years uh, with, with the pandemic. Yeah. But, you know, this is what we do. And whenever there is a little gathering, the first thing to consider is food and drinks. Mm -hmm. So for someone that is uh, trying to be very cautious with what they eat, that is, uh, can be a little bit painful. Uh, when we go to a restaurant, we have no control on what we, we eat or perhaps very little control. We, drink, we tend to drink a lot of sugary stuff, mm -hmm. all the Cokes and uh, all, all the sort of drinks. So how do we go around it? Yeah, so what I say to people is that, because you know, I travel, right? I, tr I get on planes, I, I meet friends at restaurants and cafes, is that you're in, what you've got to do in those environments where you're not in control of the food supply is, well, there's two, two things to do. You could, be, could give yourself permission to enjoy whatever you do. And actually, that's the agreement that I have with myself, is that at home, I make the best decisions I can. I cook as much as possible. But when I catch up with friends, and here it's Friday night, I'm going to catch up with some friends tonight. So my agreement with myself is that when I catch up with friends, I just enjoy whatever I want to eat, right? However... I know that 90% of the time when I'm in control of the food supply, that my choices are going to be really, really good. Um, and so it's the same thing. You have to come to an agreement with yourself about, you know, how often do I want to go to restaurants? Because if you go to restaurants every night and say, I'm going to do whatever, then we're going to have the same problem because you're eating seven nights a week, you know, things that are not necessarily going to move you towards health. So you've got to figure out how many meals are we going to eat at home? You might even spend some time finding healthy restaurants and where there's healthy options because if I know if I'm catching up with a lot of friends in one week that a number of those catch-ups need to be at cafes and, and salad bars and stuff that I know I can actually order some healthy food. Um, and the interesting thing is once you move a long, a long way down this path, you actually just naturally want healthier food when you go out because... Yeah, it's just your body's just designed, you've rewired your programming in many ways, but that doesn't stop me or anybody else giving themselves permission to enjoy some red wine or to have a beer or to you know, have some fast food even. We know that it's not helpful, but, if it, but like you said, our culture and our social circle is often built around this stuff. So I would just come to an agreement with yourself, how, many, how much of the week should be spent eating at home where I can control the food and how many times a week do I want to give myself permission to do whatever. And remember, the more permission that you give yourself, the longer your health journey is going to be. So I cannot avoid asking this question then, and it's about forgiveness or self-forgiveness. Uh, you know, this mm -hmm. podcast is called Forgiven Tribe. And, and for me, that was a, a sort of roadmap to come out of uh, a burnout. But every single time I want to test the concept 
And uh, this uh, idea of giving yourself permission is, uh, for me, the also the equivalent of letting go whatever is uh, is not serving. So don't be yeah. uh, attached to what doesn't serve you. Move on. Mm-hmm. So would you say that then there is also room for forgiveness or self-forgiveness when it comes to embracing healthy eating? Yeah, I think a lot of people... Um, they, they think they give themselves permission, but what they do is they're actually breaking rules. And the reason you know you're not giving yourself true permission is that when you get home or when you're driving home or when you're lying in bed, staring at the ceiling, you're, saying, you're, you're beating yourself up. You're being horrible to yourself saying, I shouldn't have eaten that. I drank too much. I'm so weak. I fell off the diet. And that's, that means you didn't really give yourself permission. Your inner child decided to break the rules and have a tantrum. Um, and then the parent part of you later on in the evening decided to punish that child. So that's, forgiveness definitely needs to begin in there for sure because we need to forgive ourselves. But true permission doesn't require forgiveness because you're not doing anything wrong. You're, you're doing, permission is creating space for something to be true. We accept that thing to be true and we have an agreement with ourselves that, and this, the line in the sand is different for everyone, but for me, like tonight, Friday night, my agreement with myself every Friday night is that when I wake up on Saturday, I just return to normal. You know, I don't write the whole weekend off. And for some people, it might be the drive home. It's like, you know, go for dinner. As soon as I get in the car to go home, my eating pattern just moves back to normal. Um, And so forgiveness in the beginning to forgive the old patterns that come up, definitely needed. We need self-love, self-respect, healthy boundaries but we should move towards a place where permission doesn't result in forgiveness because we're, we're not quite navigating that space correctly if we've got to forgive ourselves. We, we just want to allow it to be true. Absolutely love uh, this concept. Fantastic. Now, Mati, I want to come back to you uh, before concluding. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I would like to ask you what's going on now with you and uh, your work. What are you planning for? Is there anything that you want to share with us? Yeah, I, I, there's a lot going on, I guess. I'm, I'm always pretty busy like we all are. But um, yeah, I'm pretty lucky that my podcast, How to Not Get Sick and Die, is doing very well, and, uh, which then means that my emotional eating uh, program and weight loss program, uh, like it was sold out for a few months in a row, which is amazing. So we've got a waiting list going for that. So um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just wrapped to be able to help people with this really deep and tricky space, you know, and just be a support network for people that have tried diet after diet after diet and have realized that yeah those things aren't actually getting them where they want to go because at the end of it they just revert back to their old ways so yeah so and I guess if anybody's interested maddielansdown.com is where we hang out and uh, I've got a Facebook group I work a lot with mothers called the busy mums collective um, so you can come there if you want to you're a mother or, or even just a woman but a mother that wants to get get healthy and start working on this stuff so it's a free group you can come and check it out there but, um, but yeah that's about it I think Fantastic. And we will put all these links in the description of today's episode so people can just click on the link and find you on, on the other side. Now, before going, final question. If yeah, there was yeah. one take-home message from today that you really hope everyone will retain from this conversation, what that would be? I think the most important first step of any health journey, or wherever you are, being reminded of this is important, but take ownership. Put yourself in the driver's seat of your own life. Don't let your doctor tell you what to do. Don't let the marketing companies dictate your behavior. 
Don't let your partner or your friends bully you into drinking on Friday night if you don't want to. Take ownership of your own health. When you start taking ownership, you are then in control of what happens. Whereas before that, many of us feel out of control and like life is just happening to us. So I think the first step is to take ownership. I love that. Well, I hope that this episode has provided insights and inspiration on how we can use food to become the CEOs of our own health. And I want to leave you with a quote from Thomas Edison. He said, the doctor of the future will give no medicine, but will instruct his patients in care of the human frame, in diet, and in the course of prevention of disease. Well, 90 years after this, that we are still talking about it. So certainly we still have something to, to learn from him. Mati, thank you so much for accepting our invitation, for telling us so much and uh, shaking up uh, our, our knowledge or understanding of what food is and uh, what is not. And I really appreciate all the advice that you give us. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your genuine curiosity and um, allowing space for this conversation. So I'm really grateful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, we would love to know what you think about this topic. How is your nutrition going? Are there any questions that perhaps we didn't address today and you are curious? If so, let us know, get in touch. And also don't forget to visit Matty's website to listen to his podcast and to follow him on social media. We will put all the links in the description of today's episode. If you have been affected in any way by the topic we discussed today, hopefully not, but if it does, as always, I invite you to seek professional help. Join me next time when we will continue exploring inspiring and challenging situations. Because remember, we are together in this journey. Remember, forgiveness is like a muscle. The more you practice, the stronger and more effective it becomes. If you haven't done it yet, you can subscribe by clicking the subscribe button below. If you know anybody who could benefit from the topics discussed in this show, do some good and share the link with them. If you have a story that you want to share with us, comments or suggestions on topics you would like to be explored, send me an email at forgiventrive at gmail.com. Reviews will also be very much appreciated. And with this, it's a wrap. Till next time, thank you and goodbye.